This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. In the two years since the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences revised the way songs were nominated for the Academy Award, it's clear that the quality of the nominees has improved. I'm not saying that every single nominated song in 1946 and 1947 was 100% worthy of the Oscar, but with only five slots available, songwriters seemed to be upping their game and giving us tunes that had to make a big impression. After all, songs weren't guaranteed a nomination now under the revised rules just because studios were automatically given one nomination spot. Very few can argue against the claim that the winners of the two Academy Awards for Best Song since the rule change are well-crafted tunes. On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe was the big production number from the Harvey Girls that showed how movies could still bring the best of Broadway to the screen and dazzle in its own way. And zippity doo controversy aside, showed how a song could appeal to kids and adults and illustrate the envelope-pushing creativity that movies continue to bring to audiences. So will we hear something like that in the crop of nominees for 1948? There's only one way to find out. The nominated songs we'll hear in this episode bring us comedy, romance, and a theme song for one of the most famous cartoon birds in history. It also gave an Oscar-winning songwriter two chances to bring home another Oscar statuette. That person is Leo Robin, who wrote the lyrics for the 1938 winner, Thanks for the Memory. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Robin was pretty much a freelance lyricist after the death of his longtime composer-collaborator Ralph Ranger, who helped him write Thanks for the Memory. In his first nominated song of the year, Robin teamed up with Oscar-winning composer Harold Arlen for the song For Every Man There's a Woman, which appeared in the film Casbah. To say this is a film noir would be a major overstatement. So would calling it a crime drama. Tony Martin, the successful singer who was trying to find success in the movies at the same level as Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, wasn't getting the right roles, so he created one through his production company, Marston Productions. In this second remake of a 1937 film, he plays Pepe, a French man with an American accent who is hiding out in Algiers. Apparently, he has total immunity and protection in the Casbah, the famous fortress town. It feels like Casbah the movie is trying to be a discount version of Casablanca, but it didn't succeed at that. But I will say that the songs by Leo Robin and Harold Arlen are the highlight of the film, including their nominated song. Martin is introduced in the film by singing For Every Man There's a Woman on the terrace of his home. His way with the melody is charming the women hanging in their laundry on the roofs of the nearby homes and he's playfully suggesting that one of the women who is listening to him can be his soulmate. For every man there's a woman For every life there's a plan Wise men know it was ever so since the world began. Woman was made for man. Where is she? Where is she? Where is the woman for me? Find the one. Find the one. Then together you will find the sun. For every heart there's a moment. For every hand a glove Pepe And for every woman a man to love Where is she? Where is she? Where is the one for me? 
The second time Martin sings the song, it's more genuine. He's met a French woman visiting the Casbah, and he falls in love immediately. After evading capture by the police in a ridiculous sequence of events, he returns to the bar and then dances with the woman while serenading her with For Every Man There's a Woman. For every man there's a woman For every life there's a plan And wise men know it was ever so Since the world began Woman was made for man Where is she? Where is the woman for me? For every prince there's a princess For every Joe there's a Joe And if you wait you will meet the maid Born for you alone Happy to be your own Where is she? Where is the woman for me? Find the one Find the one, then together you will find the sun. For every heart there's a moment, for every hand a glove, and for every woman a man to love. Where is she? And of course, the woman can't resist. But the problem is that Pepe is engaged to a local bar owner who saw Pepe romancing the French woman. His fiancée takes his song and mocks him with some new lyrics by Leo Robin. <laughs> For every man there's a woman For every life there's a plan And wise men know it was ever so Since the world began Woman was made for man Where is he? Where is the lover for me? For every prince there's a princess for every Joe, there's a Joan. And if you wait, you will meet the maid born for you alone. Happy to be your own. Where is he? Where is the lover for me? Find the one. For every heart there's a moment, for every hand a glove, and for every woman a man to love. <laughs> it certainly helped the song to be performed three times all in different ways with different lyrics. It showed off Arlen's ability to write three types of songs with the same type of lyrics, and for Robin to make three love songs out of one idea. It also helped to put more prominence over the three other songs that Martin sings in the film, all of which are your typical love ballad without much to make them stand out above the dozens of others written that year. Casbah didn't do very well at the box office, and Martin blamed Universal for bad promotion and not putting it into enough theaters. Martin sued Universal, Universal countersued, and on and on for many years. In the end, everyone lost money on the project, and Tony Martin never was able to find another big movie role thanks to the negative publicity. Leo Robbins' assignment for his second nominated song was similar to what he had to do with For Every Man There's a Woman, in the movie That Lady in Ermine, the song is This Is the Moment. It's sung earnestly, then comically, then earnestly again, giving composer Frederick Hollander some work to do in staging the same song in a different style back to back. 
Robin didn't have to change the lyrics, but had to make sure what he came up with fit both versions. So here's a little background about the plot first to give it some context. The film deals with two days during the Hungarian occupation of the fictional European province Bergamo, where Betty Grable's Countess Angelina has just married her longtime love, played by Cesar Romero. On the night of their wedding, Hungary invades, and the colonel, played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., claims residency at the Countess's palace. There's a secondary plot line involving a painting of the Countess's great-great-great-great-grandmother, Francesca, who looks identical to Betty Grable and had killed the man who tried to invade during her reign. The painting of Francesca comes alive at midnight to keep the colonel from conquering the province, and at the same time, fall in love with both Angelina and Francesca. After Angelina has refused to dine with the colonel one night, he falls asleep in the dining room. The painting of Francesca comes alive at midnight and creates a dream for the colonel in which he has the date with Angelina. As she descends the staircase, Angelina sings This Is The Moment, in which she knows the love is forbidden, but might be the right one. confesses that he can't dance, but in the dream, he dances wonderfully with Angelina. He also confesses that he can't sing, but in the dream, he has the voice of an opera singer. He uses it to sing This Is The Moment, and here is where it becomes a comedic performance. Angelina thinks the colonel is too over the top in his singing and decides to take over the song and make it more romantic. This is the moment. You are 
湾。Hollander and Robin wrote two other songs for Betty Grable to sing. Including an ensemble piece in which all the paintings come alive and plan to stop the Hungarians, that song called "What I'll Do" changes time signatures quite often, making it difficult to sing for the actors and likely for the audience members who might have also enjoyed it. Joe Stafford and Dinah Shore both recorded commercial versions of "This Is the Moment," which seemed tailor-made for radio play. It's easier on the ears and easy to sing. For once, Dinah Shore didn't have the biggest hit. Joe Stafford, with the help of Johnny Mercer's Capitol Records publicity machine behind her, got this song to number five on the Billboard charts in 1948, helping boost her career after being so popular with the troops as part of the USO tour during World War II. This is the moment. This is the time. Why don't we take it and make it sublime? On this red night, we could whisper in the shadows till dawn. As skies grow bright, I'll be sorry that the shadows are gone. This is the moment love has begun. Maybe there's danger, but that might be fun. I used to say if the right one came my way, I would know it in a moment. This is the moment. You are the one. As for Hollander and Robin, who had reunited for the first time since being nominated for writing "Whispers in the Dark" back in 1937, that Lady and Ermine was their final collaboration. Robin would stay busy with writing movie songs through the remainder of the 1940s into the 1950s, while Hollander took a break from Hollywood for the next five years. Though Leo Robin was doing well working with more than one composer in 1948. Jewel Stein and Sammy Kahn were continuing their years-long collaboration. At this time, Sammy Kahn had just welcomed his first child, a boy named Steve. If you know about the bachelor life lived by Warren Beatty for nearly three decades, imagine Sammy Kahn living the same life in the late 1940s. As he wrote in his memoirs, "My bed was rarely cold." But meeting Gloria Delson in 1944 changed Kahn forever. They married in 1945, and it seems like it helped Kahn's abilities as a songwriter. Jewel Stein seemed to tolerate his lyricist's proclivities, having been married for about 20 years, but might have also noticed that Kahn's mind was more stable after his wedding. They earned two Oscar nominations in 1945, and starting with 1948, 
Khan would have an amazing five-year streak of consecutive Best Song nominations. Stein and Khan earned their 1948 nomination with the song It's Magic from the movie that marked the film debut of Doris Day called Romance on the High Seas. The music is full of comedy thanks to the old plot device of mistaken identity. Doris Day, who was the lead actress in the film, got fourth billing as Georgia, a nightclub singer who longs to afford the ticket for international travel. Long story short, she gets to go on a cruise to Brazil and falls in love with a private detective who thinks she's a married woman. Georgia and the detective tour around Havana and go to dinner at a restaurant. That's where a local band plays the song in Spanish before handing Georgia the lyrics in English. She sings it beautifully, of course, because she's a singer. The lyrics talk about things that don't happen normally, like rainbows without rain or violins playing when her lover speaks. Those magical moments are what make her believe she is truly in love. You know, you amaze me. You must have made this trip a hundred times, yet you make it sound like it's the first time. You know what my secret is? No, what? No. Come on, tell me. Well, I keep telling myself this is my first trip. Siempre guardada en mi corazón La dulce melodía y lo que dice mi canción Pedro, you must teach me that song. ¿Le gusta, señora? Sí, sí. Oh, you speak Spanish. A Cuba Libre. It's just like a native. <laughs> We have so many requests for this song, and I have some English lyrics if you like it. Oh, thank you. Will be 25 cents, please. The tourist trade. Aye, the tourist trade. You say the song begins. The song gets a very brief reprise when Georgia arrives in Rio de Janeiro. She's sitting on a beach next to a room where the hotel orchestra is rehearsing. 
The conductor hears Georgia sing It's Magic and asks her to be the headline singer during Carnival. She accepts, and that's where we get the final performance of the song. It's also where all of the mistaken identities are resolved and the right people fall in love and kiss in the middle of the Carnival celebration. Listening to this stronger rendition of It's Magic, I feel like Doris Day has the same vocal intonations as her recording rival Dinah Shore. It's magic without a golden wand or mystic charms. Fantastic things begin when I am in your arms. When we walk hand in hand, the world becomes. It's magic How else can I explain those rainbows When there is no rain It's magic Why do I tell myself These things that happen are all really true In his memoirs, Sammy Kahn said Jewel Stein started writing the melody for its magic as a tango. Kahn liked it, but the tempo had to be slowed down to make it a love ballad. Kahn also says that Stein often starts his day by playing a tango and a waltz on the piano, and many of the songs they would write going forward had some connection to the tango or the waltz. Betty Hutton was supposed to be the star of Romance on the High Seas, but she had become pregnant after filming The Perils of Pauline, so Warner Brothers went scouting for a replacement. Doris Day had been a popular radio singer on Bob Hope's weekly show, which is where Jewel Stein and Sammy Kahn heard her sing Embraceable You and convinced director Michael Curtis to give her an audition. Doris Day's inexperience doesn't show in Romance on the High Seas, but her performance made the movie a hit and launched a successful movie career. Doris Day didn't give up being a singer, though. She recorded its magic for a commercial release, and it went as high as number two on the Billboard sales charts. At the time, that was her best sales performance, and certainly the popularity of the song helped Academy voters remember it at nomination time. But will its somewhat convenient placement in the film make it an Oscar-winning song? Like Stein and Kahn, Ray Evans and Jay Livingston were also a great songwriting duo. I mentioned in the 1945 episode that Evans and Livingston had one of the longest collaborations in songwriting history, and they kept things rolling in 1948 with another nomination. Between 1945 and 1948, the two weren't very busy, mostly because their Oscar nomination in 1945, The Cat and the Canary, appeared in a little-seen film. But two of the films they worked on in 1946 helped greatly in getting them back on the Oscar nomination list in 1948. The first was the Olivia de Havilland drama, To Each His Own, which Paramount had requested a theme song written by Evans and Livingston. They wrote the song, but it never appeared in the final film, only on the radio. Livingston said in a 1992 interview that he always had people congratulating him on To Each His Own, the song they loved in that de Havilland movie. The song was covered by five different artists, each of whom carried the song to the top ten on radio play, which was a record at the time. The other 1946 film was Monsieur Beaucaire, 
starring Bob Hope as the barber to King Louis XV of France. The songs aren't great, and it's not surprising that Evans and Livingston didn't secure a nomination for either of the three songs they wrote. But Bob Hope and Paramount were very impressed by the songwriters, and along with their hit song, To Each His Own, Paramount extended Evans and Livingston's contracts through 1959. This contract also had them connected to Bob Hope, who was also a contract player at Paramount. And they were asked to write a song for the comedy My Favorite Brunette, also starring Bob Hope. The next Bob Hope film that was open for Evans and Livingston to contribute songs was 1948's The Pale Face, a comedy that put Bob Hope in the Wild West. The comedian's dislike of the frontier land leads to the performance of the song Buttons and Bows. As dentist Peter Potter, Hope is taking Jane Russell's Calamity Jane out west on the wagon trail, and Potter takes a squeeze box and sings about his preference for women with silk hosiery and French perfume that rocks the room. Near the end, Hope tries to get through five bars of the song without taking a breath. Unable to do it, he drops a few words to catch his breath before finishing the song. A western ranch is just a branch of nowhere junction to me. Give me the city where living's pretty and the gals wear finery. East is east and west is west and the wrong one I have chose. Let's go where you'll keep on wearing those frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. This prairie, take me where the cement grows. Let's move down to some big town where they love a gal by the cut of her clothes, and you'll stand out in buttons and bows. I love you in books and or skirts that you've homespun, but I love you longer, stronger, where your friends don't tote a gun. My bones denounce the buckboard bounce and the cactus hurts my toes. Let's vamoose where gals keep using those silks and satins and linen that shows. And you're all mine in buttons and bows. Give me eastern trimming where women are women in high silk hose and peekaboo clothes and French perfume that rocks the room and you're all mine. Bows, buttons and bows, buttons and bows, buttons and bows. Bob Hope gives one of his best song performances on film, better than anything he was doing with Bing Crosby in the road pictures, and right up there with his Oscar-winning tune, Thanks for the Memory. Philip Furia and Lori Patterson wrote in the book The Songs of Hollywood that Hope should have sung the song in a plain eastern tone instead of the hillbilly intonation he takes, and there is some validity to that. But in order to make it comedic, Hope felt the honky-tonk variation fit the song better. As the creators of the song, Evans and Livingston didn't seem to mind letting that performance be filmed and make it into the final print. Livingston said in his 1992 interview that he and Ray Evans wrote a different song where Buttons and Bows now sits in the film. It was a song that sort of mocks Indians, and director Norman MacLeod immediately shut it down, thankfully. When it came time to make the inevitable commercial recordings of Buttons and Bows, Evans fashioned lyrics that could work for a female singer. Columbia Records took those revised lyrics to Dinah Shore, who made it one of her signature songs. Instead of the song coming from a man singing to a woman he wants to see in pretty clothes, Dinah Shore sings about wanting to be in those frilly silks and satins instead of out in the desert. And Dinah has no problem getting through those five long breathless bars of the song at the end, probably because the tempo is a bit faster. East is east and west is west and the wrong one. Let's go where I'll keep on wearing those 
frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. Don't bury me in this prairie, take me where the cement grows. Let's move down to some big town where they love a gal by the cut of her clothes, and I'll stand out in buttons and bows. I'll love you in buckskin and skirts that I've homespun, but I'll love you longer, stronger, where your friends don't tote a gun. My bones denounce the buckboard pounce and the cactus hurts my toes. Let's famoose where gals keep using those silks and satins and linens that shows, and I'm all yours in buttons and bows. Denounce the buckboard bounce and the cactus hurts my toes. Let's spam moose where gals keep using those silks and satins and linens that shows. And I'm all yours in buttons and bows. Silks and satins and linen that shows. And I'm all yours in buttons and bows. Give me eastern trimming where women are women in high silk hose and peekaboo clothes and French perfume that rocks the room. And I'm all Buttons and bows, buttons and bows, buttons and bows, and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. Dinah Shore recorded the song in November 1947, and it was released in September 1948, three months before the film was released. By the time the movie came out, her version of Buttons and Bows was a number one hit. Bob Hope had a popular weekly radio show at the same time and used it to promote the song as well. And here's a bit of history about Dinah Shore's recording. It was recorded just before midnight on New Year's Eve 1947, a few minutes before the musicians in the American Federation of Musicians were ordered to not play on any studio recording until a deal was reached with record companies to pay musicians a percentage of record sales. This was similar to the strike that lasted from 1942 to 1944, in which the record companies agreed to pay unions more from royalties. But Congress stepped in and pushed back on that deal, which the record companies decided to rescind in 1947. So the union organized another strike, which would go their way at the end of 1948. And most of the recording industry was largely unaffected by this strike. Our final nominated song was written by two first-time Oscar nominees, making history with the Woody Woodpecker song from the short film Wet Blanket Policy. This marks the first Oscar-nominated song to come from a short film, which was allowed under the Academy of Rules at the time. And in the first 90 years of the category, it remains the only song to come from a short film, mostly because the Academy would change rules later on saying only feature films get nominated for songs. In the case of Wet Blanket Policy, the film's running time is just under seven minutes. The nominated songwriters are Ramey Idris and George Tibbles, who were just getting into songwriting in 1948. Both had been musicians in traveling bands and also performed on various radio shows before they submitted this song for Wet Blanket Policy. This was Woody Woodpecker's 30th short film, and though the 29 before it were very popular, they never began with the song, even though some put Woody Woodpecker's famous laugh into the music. Gloria Wood sings the lyrics to the song, with Harry Babbitt providing the famous laugh about the bird's desires to poke holes in a redwood and in a person's head if they rub him the wrong way. <laughs> Nothing to him on the tiniest whim to peck a few holes in your head. <laughs> oh, that's the Woody Woodpecker's tune. <laughs> Makes the other. 
This version, just a minute long, was very popular in the summer of 1948 when the short film was distributed by Universal Pictures. But that wouldn't be long enough for a commercial record, so Idris and Tibbles wrote two minutes more for Gloria Wood and Henry Babbitt, assisted by Kay Kaiser's orchestra providing the comedic instrumentation. number two on the Billboard charts, unheard of at the time for a song about a cartoon bird. Even Mickey Mouse had to be jealous, since he didn't have a theme song at the time. His wouldn't come along until 1955. And Woody Woodpecker's song followed him through the 1970s as he became a fixture in daily TV cartoon shorts. I do want to point out that while the Woody Woodpecker song made history with its nomination, Wet Blanket Policy failed to earn a nomination in the Best Cartoon Short category, beat out for a nomination by the likes of Mickey Mouse, Tom and Jerry, and Donald Duck. But anyway, what a great, interesting, fascinating group of nominated songs from 1948. But we can't go without mentioning what some might feel is a major oversight on the part of the music branch, who seemingly passed over all of the songs written by Irving Berlin for the movie Easter Parade. This movie was highly publicized because it marked Fred Astaire's return to the movies after his one-year hiatus. Trying to start a company of nationwide dance schools didn't seem to excite Astaire very much when he began his much-hyped retirement after finishing work on Blue Skies. And the itch to get back in front of the camera coincided with the casting of this musical about the romance between two stage performers. Gene Kelly was all set to star alongside Judy Garland, but Kelly severely broke his ankle just before filming started. Astaire took the part on Kelly's Blessing, and Astaire's return was just one of the reasons why Easter Parade 
became one of the biggest movies of 1948. It didn't hurt to have Judy Garland back on the screen after two years away. And Irving Berlin's song should have been a big draw, but apparently Academy voters were not impressed by two songs that have since become a stare classics, Steppin' Out With My Baby and We're a Couple of Swells. I completely understand why Steppin' Out might have been ignored by the Academy. It was performed by Astaire in blackface, though not in the extreme blackface he used about a decade ago for the Mr. Bojangles performance. It's more like brownface, but still not necessary or appropriate for the song to make its point. Plus, the song has nothing to do with the plot, and all of the nominated songs that year really helped to tell their film story. If I seem to scintillate, it's because I've got a date. A date with a package of the good things that come with love. You don't have to ask me, I won't waste your time. But if you should ask me why I feel sublime, I'm stepping out with my baby. Can't go wrong, cause I'm in right. It's for sure, not for maybe, that I'm all dressed up tonight. Stepping out with my honey, can't be bad to feel so good. Never felt quite so sunny, and I keep on knocking wood. They'll be smooth sailing, cause I'm trimming my sails. With a bright shine on my shoes and on my nails Stepping out with my baby Can't go wrong, cause I'm in right Ask me when will the day be The big day may be tonight The song would become a classic in the 1990s when Tony Bennett recorded it for a couple of albums, resurrecting his career and making Irvin Berlin relevant to a new generation falling in love with jazz. Though the lack of an Oscar nomination in the Best Song category didn't hurt Easter Parade, what did this mean for Irving Berlin's popularity? Six years ago, he was on top of the world with White Christmas, and when Easter Parade was released in June 1948, Berlin's songs for Annie Get Your Gun were immensely popular on Broadway. The songs in Easter Parade, some old, some new, were liked by moviegoers, who gave MGM nearly $7 million in ticket sales. Irving Berlin, who had just turned 60, wasn't rewarded with an Oscar nomination, but he was handsomely rewarded with a percentage of the film's gross, something a songwriter had never been able to negotiate before. So Irving Berlin had no interest in tuning into the radio broadcast of the 21st Academy Awards from the Shrine Auditorium on March 24, 1949. Actually, there was serious talk that the Academy Awards ceremony might not even happen. The antitrust lawsuit brought against movie studios for owning the movie theaters that showed their films was taken to the Supreme Court, which ruled that the studios had to relinquish control of the theaters. This meant a lot of penny-pinching for the bigger studios, which forced them to issue a statement that they would not be funding the Academy Awards as they had been for nearly two decades. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had money in its bank account, but not enough to host the award ceremony without some outside help. We're still four years away from the Oscars being shown on television, so there was no revenue to be had from that. To help cut costs, the decision was made to move the ceremony from the big Shrine Auditorium to the much smaller Academy Theater. Interest in the show was high. For the first time, there was talk of the Best Picture Award going to a movie not made in the United States. Laurence Olivier's Hamlet had a big shot at the big award, and while the Academy voters, many of whom were American, had some patriotic pride running through their veins, they did manage to give Olivier's film the Best Picture Oscar and hand Olivier the Best Actor Award as well. For the second year, the Academy Award-nominated songs were performed at the ceremony just before one of them became an Oscar-winning song, and three of the original performers were there to sing them. First was Gloria Wood and Harry Babbitt to give Woody Woodpecker his brief moment at the Oscars, and then Doris Day went on stage to sing It's Magic. Though the song was sung to her in the film, Jane Russell sang Buttons and Bows using the female version instead of Bob Hope's version. Gordon McRae and Joe Stafford performed For Every Man There's a Woman and This Is the Moment. It was up to Catherine Grayson to relieve the tension of the nominated songwriters in attendance. 
and the ones who felt the weight lifted off their shoulders were Ray Evans and Jay Livingston for writing Buttons and Bows. This gave Bob Hope two winning songs that he introduced and gave Paramount a staggering five Oscar-winning songs. For Ray and Jay, everything was indeed Buttons and Bows with this Oscar win. They had a secure contract with Paramount that would last through the 1950s, and they had a number one hit. The two had more work to do for Paramount after receiving their Oscars, but was it going to garner them another trip to the Academy Awards? You'll just have to tune into the show to find out. And after the near cancellation of the Academy Awards in 1949, the ceremony found new footing with the studios for the 1950 awards. That meant the winners of the awards from 1949 films would be announced at a bigger venue with all the big-budget glamour that made the Academy Awards the showbiz event of the year. And that was necessary because the movie awards had some big competition on their heels. On January 25, 1949, the Television Academy gave out its first Emmy Awards for Excellence in TV Programming, but only for those programs that aired in Los Angeles. Like the first Academy Awards, it was a small affair, but as TV grew, the medium not only battled for the public's attention, but also implicitly tried to steal some of the movie industry's thunder as the new decade approached. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of the Best Song Podcast. So appreciative of you for singing along with me on this episode, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.